Welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, I invite you to turn in God's word to the gospel of John, John chapter 17, what has been uh, called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Imagine for a moment that you could overhear the Son, Jesus Christ, praying to the Father on your behalf and on behalf of the church. Imagine being able to overhear the, the son's, seeing the Son's heart expressed in petitions to the Father, to see what He desires for His people and what's important to Him. Well, we don't have to imagine because that's exactly what we have in chapter 17. This is the prayer of the Son of God to the Father on behalf of the church. And uh, we are treading on holy ground. So let's read John 17, 1 and following together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with a glory that I had before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that, I, that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, 
and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us so well that you have given us your son who at the cost of his life redeems us from our sins and reconciles us to you. Lord, we thank you that you did not hold anything back but freely surrendered your life that we might be washed of our iniquity and presented spotless and holy before the Father. In your work and in you we rejoice this morning. Uh, Alive in our hearts we pray to the glory and wonder of who you are and what you have done, Lord. We pray this morning, Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, that you would protect us from the evil one, from his assaults and from the assaults of the world. Father, this this world is full of temptation, full of evil. We ask that our faith would not fail, that we would persevere in trusting in Jesus to the end. We pray that you'd protect our community and church from the attacks of the evil one, from Uh, doctrinal error and divisive people. We pray that you would protect us from division and evil and grant us to remain united in Christ for the advancement of the gospel in the world and for our joy. Protect us, we ask. Sanctify us this morning, Father, through your word. Purify us. Cause us to reflect Jesus more and more. There are places, pockets of disobedience, of which we are perhaps ignorant this morning. Use your word to expose those and lead us to repentance. Sanctify us, we ask. And Father, keep us united. Teach us to love one another and live in such a way that the gospel would be adorned through our conduct. Use your word to accomplish all your good purposes this morning, we ask. Amen. Well, as I've hinted already, what we see in this prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, is the things of first importance to our Lord as he is about to leave this world. Uh, What we see is what Jesus wants for the church, for his people, as he prepares to return to the Father. And it is an unbelievably rich uh, portion of scripture and and rich prayer. There is so much that we won't say this morning. But let me just give you a rough overview so you're aware of the general divisions. And then we will hone in on four petitions or requests that Jesus makes specifically. So first major division are verses 1 through 5, where Jesus prays for himself and specifically prays for his glorification. We'll look at what that means in a moment. And then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his original disciples. Now, bear in mind that the things he prays for his original disciples, he also prays for us. But in the first instance, they're prayed for the original disciples. And he prays specifically uh, two things. Um, from verses 11 through 16, he prays for their spiritual protection. And then verses 17 through 19, he prays that they would be sanctified. Then in verse 20, there's a shift from the original disciples to those who would believe through them. And we're in that category. And what's wonderful about the prayer is that, in a sense, Jesus is praying for us as well. Uh, he prays specifically that we would be one, that we would be united. Verses 20 through 23 and finally, 20, verses 24 and following, Jesus petitions the Father that his people would one day, when all is said and done, see the glory of the Son, the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. So that's the general uh, layout of the prayer. We will focus specifically, though, on Jesus' petition to be glorified, and then his uh, requests on our behalf that we would be protected, sanctified, and kept as one, unified. 
So, uh, opening request that the son makes to the father is glorify your son. Now, verse 5 clarifies what Jesus is asking. When Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed, it shows us that when Jesus prays, glorify me in this instance, he's praying that he would be exalted, uh, that he would have the splendor, magnificence, greatness, grandeur that he had in the presence of the Father before the creation of the world. He is asking to be exalted to that place of divine glory once again. But of course, the path to exaltation is a path of suffering, hardship, humiliation, uh, the cross, and even death. And so in praying to be exalted, Jesus is also committing himself to the anguish of the cross, the suffering and even death for his people. That's what he asked the Father. Father, exalt me. And of course, the path to exaltation is one of suffering. But note the purpose for which Jesus asks to be glorified. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The idea here is that as Jesus endures the anguish of the cross as he dies, rises again, and is exalted, God the Father is also displayed to the world. The saving actions of the Son reveal the goodness, the compassion, the love, the wisdom of the Father. It is as we behold Christ in his saving work that we behold the truth about the Father. We see the depth of his love in his commitment to justice and his wisdom. For the Son to be glorified is for the uh, Father to be glorified. And then look at verse 2. Verse 2 gives the reason that he makes that request. Father, glorify your name. Why? Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The reference here is to a decision made in eternity past on the part of the Father that the Son, on the other side of his victory, would have authority over all humanity. So in eternity past, the Father decrees that on the other side of his victory, Jesus would have authority as the risen King over all humanity. And the purpose of bestowing that authority is so that Jesus might give eternal life uh, to those whom the Father has given to him. Uh, So notice the logic here. Father, glorify yourself because it's my job to give eternal life. Like you've given me authority to give eternal life. Glorify yourself because I have the responsibility to bestow eternal life. The implication is that the display of God's character, his love and wisdom and goodness, imparts eternal life. When the Father is displayed to the world, eternal life will be given to those who behold the glory of God and believe it. The two interpret each other. For Jesus to give eternal life is to display the Father to the world. And this is made explicit in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have spent. Or not spent, sorry, sent. There it is. Uh, Eternal life in John doesn't mainly refer uh, to life that goes on and on, forever and ever. Instead, it uh, it refers to a quality of life. The highest possible life imaginable is not one where we have an endless flow of cash, where we can buy whatever pleasure we want, go on whatever exotic vacation we want. Uh, The essence of life as it was really meant to be lived is not even stimulating work 
or spectacular romantic relationships or great friendships, as important as these might be, the essence of life is to know God, to behold him in all of his glory, and to know the Son. If you are in a relationship with God the Father and God the Son, regardless of what your outward circumstances might be, you have the life that you were created to have. This is the most important thing in the world. And if you have all the wealth you know what to do with and prestige and power and influence and every pleasure that you want, but you don't know God, you're dead. There is no amount of earthly pleasure that can compensate for the loss of God. True life is knowing the Father and the Son. If you, if you know them this morning, then you are blessed. Jesus' point here is that his saving actions, his betrayal, his suffering, his crucifixion, death, resurrection, and exaltation, these saving actions reveal the Father climactically, decisively, fully. We see the radiance of the glory of God in Jesus. Uh, we often don't think of the saving work of Jesus in these terms. Like we understand the actions of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection. We understand that these things procure salvation for us. They purchase salvation. They wash us of our sins and bring us to God. Praise God, that's true. But Jesus' saving actions don't just purchase salvation. They are also rel- revelatory. His saving actions reveal God and the character of God to us in a powerful, climactic, and decisive way. So when we see the anguish of the Son of God at the cross and his triumph on Easter and his exaltation, we are also seeing the truth about who God is. In the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ, we see the character of God on display. One of the reasons that's significant is it shows that the gospel or the good news about Jesus is not simply something we believe to get saved and then move on from. People sometimes have this idea. Well, the the truth about Jesus' death and resurrection is what you have to believe to become a Christian. And then once you become a Christian, you can sort of leave that behind you and move on to uh, bigger things, greater things. That's just not true. The same message that saves you continues to refresh you, to renew you, uh, precisely because in that message, we behold the glory of God. That's where we see God displayed to us. And so, of course, we never get to a point where we leave the gospel behind us. It's a bit like, imagine going on a vacation to the Caribbean, and the first day you get there, you watch the sunset, and you see all the purples and greens and blues in the ocean. Lovely. Your heart soars. Well, the next day, sunset comes, and uh, your wife says to you, hey, let's go look at the sunset again. You say, no, 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 I'm good. I've already seen it. I'm going to watch some Netflix. Turn on the TV. No need to see it again. I've already seen it. Of course, that's, that's foolish. Uh, you don't get tired of seeing that sunset. You see it again and again, and every time you see it, it brings pleasure and joy and delight and refreshes you, and you see new things and new dimensions to the sunset. The same thing holds true for the gospel. We don't look at the splendor and goodness of God revealed in the sun and go, oh, okay, I've already looked at it, thank you very much. No, it it becomes the the focal point of our existence. We We desire to behold our God revealed in the face of Christ, or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same thought. The Father's compassionate and good character is revealed in the Son, and we go to the gospel again and again to be nourished and strengthened in our faith. 
in his book, uh, Preaching and Preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher from the 20th century, uh, makes, I think, a very important uh, observation and implicitly a warning. He says, there, there's a cert- there are Christians who love the Bible, who are really interested in discussing fine points of theology and biblical interpretation, and they're interested in perhaps in very esoteric aspects of the Bible's teaching, all all kinds of minute details about the second coming, perhaps. Uh, They're interested in the Bible's wisdom principles, what the Bible teaches about how to use your money and how to have a good marriage and how to raise kids and leadership, right? They're interested in all of these things, but there is a startling lack of interest in Christ and the gospel. And he says, you can be really enthusiastic about the Bible and the details of the Bible and doctrine and have no real love for Jesus and enthusiasm for his death, his resurrection, and the grace of God revealed in those things. Assess yourself. Will the people around you say, whatever else is true about him or her, they love Jesus. They rejoice in the grace of God. They delight to talk about and celebrate the death and resurrection and triumph of the Son of God. That is integral and central to their life. Is that central or is that peripheral in your life? Are you more excited about whatever esoteric theme in Scripture there might be than than the glory of God revealed in Jesus? It's good to ask ourselves that question and reflect on what excites us, what draws us. God is displayed in the saving work of his son. Second petition. Uh, Jesus goes on from praying for himself to praying for his original disciples. And the first petition on their behalf is that God would keep them. If you've read through the Gospels, you you know they need keeping, just as we need keeping. Uh, They're weak, they struggle, so do we. Jesus is about to leave this earth, he says in verse 11, Uh, but they're going to stay on earth. And so they need the Father to keep them or protect them. He says, keep them in your name, meaning uh, cause them to remain loyal to you. Cause them to remain faithful and committed to you, Father. They, there is, they are in danger, apart from God's intervention, of rejecting the faith, turning, the way, turning away. There, there are many temptations that they face. And so the Son is praying to the Father, Protect them from spiritual ruin. Protect them from being destroyed spiritually and walking away. Guard them. And then Jesus goes on and says, that's exactly what I've done while I was with them. I kept them in your name. I have guarded them. We often don't think about this aspect of Jesus' work. Like we understand he died and rose again to take away our sins. Praise God. But we also need to recognize that Jesus protects us from spiritual ruin, just as he did the original disciples. He guards us. Uh, We would be destroyed if he didn't continue to guard us. And one of the ways he guards us is by interceding with the Father on our behalf. The book of Hebrews talks about the intercessory work of the Son. He lives to make intercession for the people of God. He says, Father, keep them, protect them. Don't let them be destroyed. And the Father delights to answer the prayer of the Son and protect his people. So why do they need to be kept, protected? Well, verse 14 tells us, I've given them your word, and the the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The world is mankind in its opposition to God. Mankind in rebellion against the creator. The world hated Jesus, and the world will hate the church and the people of God. It will oppose them. It will persistently pressure them. 
It will take perhaps uh, social prominence away from them. They, they will be marginalized by the world. Uh, they, they will suffer financial hardship. They will lose their, their, their freedoms, being imprisoned, and perhaps even their life. There will be a steady antagonism on the part of the world to the church. And there will therefore be a temptation to walk away from the faith. And so Jesus says to the Father, don't let them yield to that temptation. Let them endure courageously to the end, bring them safely home. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament was actually written to a group of people who were tempted by precisely this. Um, they were believers, early Christians, and they were facing all kinds of persecution from a hostile society. Imprisonment, loss of property, uh, social marginalization. Um, and, and it's often the case, it's not the first wave of opposition that knocks you, knocks you down, it's that unrelenting, steady stream of opposition from the world. And some of them were beginning to waver. And so Hebrews was written to encourage them to stay the course, to, to remain fast. But we see the temptation that is created when the world puts pressure on us. There's often a temptation to seek relief by walking away from Jesus. And Jesus is saying, because of that, Father, I'm praying that you not allow them to capitulate. Protect them from the onslaught of the world. And then verse 15, protect them from the onslaught of the devil. I do not, I do not ask that you, have, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. On the one hand, Jesus is clear that his cross work, his crucifixion, resurrection, defeats Satan. He doesn't have dominion and authority over God's people. He is defeated. On the other hand, even though he doesn't have dominion over God's people, he is still capable of tempting and attacking and destroying. There is such a thing as spiritual warfare as we see in Ephesians chapter 6. The devil is a cunning foe, and the powers of darkness attack our faith in a variety of ways. They tempt us to depart from the faith. It's a powerful and potent onslaught. And so Jesus prays to the Father, don't let them be tempted by the evil one, by the devil, and be destroyed. And finally, we might note, uh, you've had these moments, I suspect, in your walk with the Lord where you discover that there is more darkness and evil in you than you thought. There are these moments of painful self-awareness where something brings to life a level of pride and self-love and selfishness and foolishness that you thought you had gotten past. You guys know what I'm talking about. You know those moments. Like, I, I thought I was beyond this. And whoa, there's a world of evil that's still in here. We know the strength of the darkness within. And so we need to be protected because of the opposition from the world, the opposition of Satan, and even the darkness that still remains. If God didn't pledge himself to protect us, uh, we would be in danger of just collapsing spiritually. Now, here's one of the great ironies of this, the Christian life. The more you want to obey Jesus and live for him, the more intensely you will feel the power of darkness and of the opposition from Satan and your own heart. So the person who swims against the current feels the strength of the current most, right? The person who's going with the flow doesn't feel the strength of the current. They're going with it. The more you want to please Jesus and follow him, the more opposition you will encounter. And when you encounter that opposition, it is a precious and life-giving truth that the Son has prayed for you that the Father would keep your faith from failing. So when you come to one of those moments, you're like, Lord, I'm, I'm astonished by the darkness that exists in me. Keep in mind in those moments that the Son is praying for you and the Father is committed to keeping you 
and that's no small comfort. He has pledged himself uh, to finish the good work that he has started. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're in one of those moments of, one of those dark nights of the soul. You have more questions than answers. You're confused. You don't feel God's comfort and consolation. It feels a million miles away. Well, what Jesus is saying to you is you may not feel God, but God is committed to protecting his people and bringing them safely home. And his faithfulness is stronger than even the darkness in their lives. So look to him and hope in him. God guards his people and brings them safely to the other side. Third petition. Jesus prays that his disciples would be sanctified. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. And that's not a word we often use, sanctify. The thought is separation from and separation to. So a person who's been sanctified has been separated from the defilement and corruption and pollution of the world and separated to God to be used for his purposes. They have been consecrated to God to be used in accordance with his will. They belong to him. They are dedicated to him. It's a bit like the priest in the Old Testament uh, when oil was poured on his head and he was consecrated. He was separated from the sphere of the ordinary and transferred to the sphere of the sacred, the sphere of belonging to God. He was dedicated to the Lord. Uh, The meaning of the word is further clarified by verse 19 where Jesus says, for their sake I consecrate myself. Now the word translated consecrate in Greek Hagiazo is exactly the same word translated sanctify, same word. And Jesus is saying, I'm setting myself apart to do the work of God, which means death, suffering, crucifixion. I'm setting myself apart for that work for the purpose that they may be sanctified. In other words, as a result of Jesus' saving work, they're going to be cleansed of their moral pollution, cleansed of their sins, separated from this rebellious, evil world, and dedicated to God so that their lives would be honoring to him. That's the thought here. There is a separation that Jesus uh, prays for, and notice how it occurs. It occurs in the truth, which we could translate by the truth. Those, and the truth here refers to the truth about Jesus. Those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and in, in the saving message about him are washed, are cleansed, are separated from this world and consecrated to the purposes of God. Uh, That indicates to us that there are three things that we should especially remember when when we realize that we are sanctified. In the first instance, sanctification teaches us how we should view ourselves. When God looks at you, what does he see? Does he see a polluted, dirty, filthy, corrupt person? person you're tempted to view yourself as, perhaps? Well, those who have been sanctified by the work of Jesus have been cleansed of their pollution and uncleanness. So when God looks at them, he views them as holy, pure, and precious. In light of the work of Jesus, understand that that's how the Father views you. As one who has been washed and cleansed of all impurity, and you are sacred in the sight of God. That is how God views you. And it's important to recognize that that's how God views you because the logic of New Testament moral exhortations is that we should become what we are. 
recognizing that we are cleansed in the sight of God and pure in his sight, we should pursue that purity every day by putting sin to death and walking in increasing obedience. Another way to say it is that those who have been sanctified are saints. The New Testament connects those two things. If you have been sanctified, washed, set apart from God, then the Bible calls you a saint. And the New Testament doesn't reserve that terminology for the spiritual high flyers, the spiritual elite. It uses it for all of God's people. Those who have been sanctified, who trust in the word of Jesus, are saints, precious and holy in the sight of God. It's the first thing we should recognize. Second thing, to be separated unto God and consecrated to his purposes teaches us what the purpose of our life should be. Life is not about getting what you want, doing what you want. Uh, God owns you. He has separated you for himself. And the aim of life should be to live for his glory and honor him in everything. And third, and closely related to that, it's important to recognize that Jesus has sanctified them, separated them from the world unto God for the sake of mission. Notice how verse 18 follows verse 17. Praise that they would be separated unto God. And then verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The Father sent, sent the Son into the world to save a people. And Jesus is saying, I'm sending a people into the world, and I want them to be separated or consecrated to that task. To be sanctified or set, set apart for God is to be set apart for mission. What this means is that the Christian life is never a matter of passive self-indulgent disengagement from the world. There's a paradox here. On the one hand, Jesus has taken us out of the world, right, by claiming us as his own. But on the other hand, he has separated us from the world so we can go back into the world and be salt and light and cause other people to know Jesus. Are you living for yourself fundamentally? Or are you living to advance the purpose of Jesus Christ in the world, to help others walk with him and know him? God has Yes, claimed us for himself, consecrated us to himself, but he's also consecrated us to mission, to living with purpose and intentionality to advance the kingdom of God. And finally, Jesus prays his final petition for the unity of the church, the unity of the church. And here he transitions to those who will come to believe through the original disciples, uh, everybody after, including us. And notice what Jesus prays. As he's about to depart from this world, what does Jesus want for his people? I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Jesus, Jesus wants a people who are unified. Unified in purpose and mission, committed to him. And, and unified in terms of a, having a harmonious community. Uh, Relationships in the world are characterized by pride and jealousy and bitterness and frustration and selfishness and gossip and fighting. There are all sorts of natural divisions that exist among human beings. But what Jesus wants for his people is a community increasingly unified by the gospel, a community of sacrificial love and service, a community where people are ready to forgive quickly, overlook offenses, and seek forgiveness where necessary, a community marked by love, sacrificial service, and notice that this unity that Jesus desires is fundamentally grounded in our unity, our spiritual unity to God. Jesus says, verse 23, I in them, so Jesus is in us, through the Holy Spirit, and he, pr and he prays for this unity that they may become perfectly one. 
In other words, because we are united by the Holy Spirit to the Father and Son, we are capable of being united to one another, loving each other, living for the same purpose and on mission together. And notice what's at stake. Jesus prays that there would be such a unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Quick parenthesis. I know I've said a lot already, but I can't help myself. I should say this. Don't miss the fact that the Father loves us as he loves the Son. He loved them even as you love me. The Father's love for his people is, is the same in, in a profound sense as the love that he has for the Son. That is the depth of the Father's love. And Jesus says, I'm praying that they would be unified so the world would look at this community, marked by love, marked by unity, and they would, they would know in seeing that unity that I came from you and that you love them. So Jesus is saying at the heart of God's plan to save people is the unity of the church. Mark Dever, Baptist minister, describes this as display evangelism. When the church lives as a countercultural community where we care about each other, where we forgive each other, where, our, where we are ready to defer and not always assert ourselves, where there is unity, the world will be able to look in and glimpse the power of the gospel. The world will be able to see in the present something of the future humanity that Christ will establish when he returns. And when they see the unity produced by the Holy Spirit, they will say, Jesus came from the Father. The gospel is true and right. So the unity of the church matters not just in terms of our personal encouragement. It matters because it is at the very heart of God's plan to redeem a people for himself. And those who disrupt the unity of the church are hindering not just the spiritual welfare of their brothers and sisters, but the mission of the church to bring many to Christ. Are you committed to what Jesus is committed to and what Jesus values? Are you committed to the unity of the church? I think one way in which contemporary Christians are not committed to the unity of the church is by how flimsy their commitment is to each other. So often, uh, something happens that someone doesn't quite like, the leadership makes a decision that you don't quite like, or you're, someone has said something hurtful and you say, you throw your hands up in the air, okay, this church is not for me, I've been hurt. I'm going to go find another church. And guess what? You'll find sinners there too, not least you. And someone will offend you and you will give offense and, and so it will go. You can't have unity where there isn't a real commitment to other people. I mean, imagine a marriage where the husband and wife in the back of their minds say, like, if, if they don't treat me the way I want to be treated, if they do anything hurtful, I'm, I'm out. I mean, that, that marriage would fall apart in five seconds. You have to go into these conversations with, a, with an iron commitment that I don't care what happens, we're going to figure it out. And to an extent, the same thing should hold true in church life. Okay, you've offended me. I don't like how you treat me. There's many things about you I don't like. But we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we've got to roll up our sleeves and work on this. We know we've got to be ready to seek forgiveness and, and receive forgiveness. Now, sometimes you don't leave, okay? But sometimes you go, I don't like that person. I don't like anything about them. And so I will just be civil, nice, polite. I'm not going to say anything, but there's no warmth. There's no, there's no affection. There's no real desire to love this person. That is, that is a failure also to pursue the unity that Jesus calls us to. We have to fight for these relationships. We have to, we have to repent of our pride and self-assertiveness 
and seek the unity of the body of Christ. We need to cherish each other, be ready to forgive each other, and, and that means fighting for our relationships. Is that reflected in the way that you live your life? So many of us are so individualistic in our approach to Christian life. If I'm having good experience at the church, okay, good. As soon as it's not going well for me, you feel no responsibility to the local church and to Jesus to try to improve things. It's just about you. It mattered to Jesus, it should matter to us. So how do we pursue this unity? One, we pray for it, like Jesus prayed. Pray for your local church. Pray that God would protect it. Uh, we pursue this unity also by pursuing Jesus hard. The church is not based, like the unity of the church is not built upon shared interests and shared backgrounds. Like we come from all sorts of different walks of life, different levels of education and income. What do we have in common? Why are we here today together? We're here today together because of Jesus. We have one Savior, and we are all trying to follow him. And as we seek to follow him and are zealous about that, we will find ever-deepening unity with one another. You've probably experienced this with even brothers and sisters you don't know that well. There were years ago, I went to a conference with my wife Stephanie in Minneapolis, one of these Desiring God conferences, and, uh, and there were two other couples who were also attending that conference in our hotel. We just bumped into each other. And I remember sitting around, I think there was a fire. I like to think there was a fire. In any case, it was the common area. There were hot chocolate chip cookies brought out. And we had no context, no relationships. One couple was middle-aged from the Midwest, and the other was older from California. No history together. But we just loved Jesus. And there was a warmth. We were, as we were talking about Jesus and, and what he did and what that means for us, there, there was an enthusiasm, a warmth, a love, and affection born out of recognizing these are fellow travelers. We may not know each other, not have the same interests, but we're going in the same direction, and we have the same Savior. So as we all pursue Jesus hard, we will go, oh, you too. All right, let's roll up our sleeves and be on mission together for Jesus Christ. The shared pursuit of Jesus and his mission unites the church. So my prayer, and certainly Jesus' prayer, and the rest of our prayer should be that this kind of unity would prevail at CBC for the advancement of the gospel. We should cherish the unity of the church and passionately pursue it. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we are incredibly proud and we are incredibly eager to be first. Uh, we disregard the gifts uh, you've given to others and our pride is a threat to the very unity that you call us to. And so we pray that you'd kill pride in every heart. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would graciously through your spirit and truth produce a humble, joyful people committed to you, committed to each other, and uh, effective in evangelism. Grant that the quality of our shared life together here at CBC would truly honor you and truly be a means by which you bring many to yourself. Amen.